Um, Ward Farnsworth is a professor of law at the University of Texas in Austin and is the holder of the W. Page Keaton Chair at the University of Texas School of Law, where he was dean from 2012 to 2022. He served as reporter for the American Law Institute's Restatement of Law, Third Towards Liability for Economic Harm, and is the author of many books on law, rhetoric, philosophy, and chess, including The Practicing Stoic, published in 2018, 2018 and The Socratic Method, published in 2021. Thank you so much, Ward. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with all of you. And I want to start like everybody does, but very justly in thanking Donald Robertson and his team, not just for this event, but for their great leadership in the world of ideas. They've all, they've all done so much to raise the profile and the quality of discussion of the things we care about the most. I think we all owe a lot to them, and I'm very grateful to be here um, under their auspices and very grateful to be here with all of you. We've had some wonderful talks, so good that I'm in the position of having the curse of the last speaker, that it's not clear to me how much I can add to the amazing things that have been said already in this event. But in a lot of ways, I think these talks are each restating some very important things from different points of view. And so perhaps I can restate them from mine and, uh, and that'll speak to a few people in a different way. So I'm a law professor. And as one of the speakers mentioned, uh, a lot of people associate the Socratic method with scary law professors terrorizing students. Uh, I, I'm uh, here to try to rehabilitate the Socratic method uh, away from that point of view and, and towards something that I think is one of the great gifts of the classical world to all of us. I think of the Socratic method as an orientation of mind, um, different from the, from the orientation of mind that we use by default and therefore challenging. Uh, it's a humbler, more inquisitive uh, frame of mind, uh, a path toward intelligence. So. Uh, what I want to do with my time is just give you a quick sense from my point of view, as, partly as a law teacher, of how the Socratic method works and how to do it so that you at least leave these events feeling you can you can do a thing a little differently or a little better than maybe you could at the start. And then what I think some of the implications are and why I think it's so important and why the Socratic method is something that I think all of us can benefit from every day, uh, not just when we're doing street epistemology or, or talking to people about things that uh, we might disagree about. So Socratic method, strictly speaking, is, of course, the style of discourse that Plato depicts Socrates using in his dialogue. Whether Socrates ever really talked like that, we don't know. Uh, but we have these dialogues and we've attempted to sort of reverse engineer uh, what Socrates asked and how he did it into a method. So um, most fundamentally, let's just do let me start with an example or two. Uh, let's start with something simple. Uh, somebody's just got an opinion. And there's a principle behind it that has to get smoked out. But the, the person with the opinion isn't usually in possession of the principle. There's a possession of the opinion in the foreground. So Socrates asks questions. And Socrates wasn't talking about movies. But to keep it simple, let's imagine that's what we're talking about first. You're talking to a friend. And they say that movie is no good. How can you be Socratic about that? Well, you'd ask them. You could ask them, why do they think that? But the really Socratic approach would be to say, what makes a good movie? You know, what's the definition of good behind your claim? And then they'd say, oh, a good movie. And they'd give you a bunch of examples of good movies. And you'd say, oh, I see what you mean. But that's really not what I was asking. I was looking for examples of good movies. I was looking for the meaning of good movie that tells you those are good movies. And they'd say, oh, I see what you mean. Well, a good movie's got to have good character development. That's the, that's the key thing. And you say, well, what about this other movie you like? That one didn't have a lot of good character development did it. Yeah, well, 
I guess it didn't, but it had other good things going for it. Oh, sounds like character development isn't necessarily the thing. Let's talk about the other stuff. And on it, and on it goes. And at the end, the person probably hasn't changed their mind about whether they like that movie they started talking about. But you both might have learned something about movies and what makes them good. You might have discovered that it's actually harder to say than you thought. In any event, uh, that, of course, is not what Socrates was talking about, but I like to use it as an example because it's something we can all imagine more easily. Socrates took that kind of style of, of inquiry and applied it to bigger things. So somebody's obsessed, not with a bad movie, but with money. That's what they really need for the life they want. And Socrates asks a question like, huh, what's the good life? What do you mean by that? Say so the good life, that's a big house in Miami. Says, no, I, I didn't mean what are examples of the good life. I meant, how do you know whether a life is good? Uh, and the, the person says, oh, well, uh, it's uh, pleasure. A life, a good life is a life with pleasure. I say, oh, what if, but what if a life had a lot of pleasure in it, but it was only obtained by doing horrible things to other people? Would you consider that a, a good life? And they say, well, no, of course not. Say, Maybe revise what you said. A good life is a life of pleasure without hurting other people. What if it was a, a life spent on drugs and then you had pleasure without hurting other people? Say, no, that's not what I meant. What, what did you mean? And so it goes. That's what Socratic dialogues are like. Basically, they begin, there's a pattern and it always begins with an opinion in the foreground that's held. And the Socrates tries to sort of take it back to the studs by asking, why do you think that? Or what is the presupposition behind that? What is the principle that get in the background that gives you this opinion in the foreground? And the person tries to articulate a principle. And then he asks questions about whether the principle explains or is consistent with the opinion in the foreground, or whether the principle is consistent with other things the person uh, believes, who, who claims to hold the principle. And Socrates always finds or suggests contradictions between different things the person believes. Uh, so this sounds modest and unassuming, this little process, but it has many uses, many payoffs. It's a, it's, if you think of it as a style of thought, not just as a thing to do to other people, uh, it's very different from the one we usually use. I, I think of it as like a, the, the Socratic question is like a drip of water, it's a slow drip drip. And like other drips of water, it can carve out canyons uh, if it's persistent and used in the right way. So let me talk about some uses of the Socratic method and some details in, in sort of what I think is the, the value of it. One, of course, speaking as a law professor is, it's a magnificent method of argument, very effective. And a lot of young people come to love it for this reason. It's sort of like a martial art that uses the weight of the other person against them. So it can be used by people who themselves are not full of strength or expertise, because you're really just asking questions about the premises, the major premise behind what people think in the foreground. And most people are much clearer on what they think in the foreground than they are in the deep reasons for it. So once you ask them for a principle that explains why they think what they do, they find themselves on shakier ground. They can offer one, but then when you start asking some other questions about possible counterexamples, it's, it's, it's astonishing how quickly they, or we, if we are the ones being questioned, uh, find themselves on, on infirm ground. So, uh, as I say, a lot of lawyers love the discovery of this. They realize they can tie people in knots at the dinner table. I generally discourage this. Uh, let's think instead about how the Socratic method can be used at its best, not only as a way to argue, 
but as a way to advance constructive discourse and not be obnoxious. This especially has to be stressed because I find that many people who've read Socratic dialogues came away from them in their memories, mostly just thinking of Socrates going around annoying people with persistent hair-splitting questions that, that really did nobody any good. I think the Socratic method at its best is a much more humane uh, thing than that and doesn't seem that way at all. So to, for openers, the Socratic method never involves contradicting people or telling them they're wrong. Uh, we've heard reasons for that. Telling people that tends to just make them dig in deeper. But in any event, with Socrates, it's always just asking questions. And the posture of the questioning is not adversarial. There are examples of famous Socratic dialogues where it gets pretty adversarial because Socrates is up against a blowhard. But at its best, the Socratic method is you not standing across from the other person, but you standing next to them and saying, let me understand why you think what you think. And then let's see if we can find common ground, something we both agree on. That expression, can we agree? That's a very powerful question or, or approach in the Socratic method. So you're trying to find something that you do both agree on, and then if, see if you can reason from there back toward the thing that you don't. Uh, a very helpful thing that Socrates sometimes does in the Socratic dialogues that I think is a very useful part of the method is explaining back the other person's position to them in a way they find perfectly satisfactory, both in substance and in tone. Uh, that's important for you, because until you really know that you understand just what they mean, you're not in a good position to ask questions about or even, or even disagree with them. But it's also very important just to make the dialogue constructive. If somebody hears you explain what they think back to them, and they think you said it in a sympathetic way that they have no objections to at all, they're much more disarmed and much more prepared to then go with you to other places, take your questions seriously, not feel embarrassed, not feel they're losing face, that is how you position yourself next to them. You say, let me see if I understand it right. The way you look at it, and I want to make sure you're pleased with this, is, and you explain it all. And then you say, okay, so I see what you mean, and we're in this together. We're both trying to understand. But if you think that, then what about this other thing? That's what I'm wondering about. I think the spirit in which to ask these questions is maybe less like Socrates, the dialogues, and more like Lieutenant Columbo. It's more like, I see what you mean. I've just got this question that's bothering me, and I wonder what you think about it. You're trying to put yourself alongside them and answering a question together, because once you drain the adversarial character out of the discussion, much better things can happen. As long as people feel that it's adversarial, you're very likely to make headway with them at all. Okay, uh, so that's wonderful stuff for dialogue, for talking to other people. But ultimately, I don't think of the Socratic method as principally a thing to do with other people, let alone uh, to other people. I think of it principally as a style of thought. It's a mindset. It's something you do yourself. And you treat the dialogue as a model for thought. And this is an idea that is indeed itself in the dialogues. That you have Socrates saying, it seems to me that, that when I think about thinking, thinking amounts to a conversation the mind has with itself. And indeed, I think that is a way to think about what the dialogues of Plato are. They're Plato thinking aloud or indeed on the page about problems he's trying to work through. So that every character in a platonic dialogue is basically an aspect of Plato. The same way that in a dream, you might some say that, that every figure in a dream is an aspect of the self. And so in effect, Plato is just working out what he thinks by putting the different trains of thought he has about a problem into the mouths of different characters and seeing what happens when they go against each other. Uh, this seems to me something that everybody benefits from. We have this notion in psychology of the executive function that engages in you know, deferral of gratification and planning and, and, and the like. 
what I propose is there's also a Socratic function, or there ought to be, in the mind that basically puts skeptical questions to the self and asks why you really think what you believe you do and takes that back to the studs and then asks uncomfortable questions about it. And although Socrates is himself very rude in a lot of the dialogues, much more rude than I think any of us ought to be to other people, there is one person whom I think you can be just about that rude, and that's yourself in your sort of uh, ethically obstinate and pompous moments when you're sure you've got all the answers. Sometimes those aspects of the self only respond to a certain harshness toward them when you recognize that you're probably more ignorant uh, than you realize. People read the Socratic dialogues and think, who would want to be like Socrates? He seems so cold. Uh, well, I don't think anybody would really want to be Socrates, but I think you should want to have a Socrates, an internalized aspect of yourself that functions as, as a Socrates does. When you think of it that way, the Socratic method stops being something that you do on special occasions or at the dinner table at Thanksgiving when you're talking to your, your uncle who seems crazy. It's a way of thinking about thinking for yourself because the grand lesson of the dialogues when you've read enough of them and had enough of them is thinking accurately about the things that matter most is excruciatingly difficult, much harder than it seems. The satisfaction and pleasure of holding an opinion and being pissed off at other people is so great that it masks us to how rickety the foundations of those opinions are uh, within ourselves. And it either takes a very persistent external questioner or a very well-developed Socratic function within the self to not just to find the, the, the defects in our thinking in any given case, but to remember at all times that the foundations of what we think we believe are probably not as firm as we as we thought. Socrates is constantly exposing, as, other, as others have said, the double ignorance of his inner, of the people he's talking to, his interlocutors. By double ignorance, we mean not only do they not understand things, they don't they don't understand that they don't understand. And by the time you've read a lot of Socratic dialogues and thought a lot about it, what you realize is that is your position and my position and the position of all of us to a much greater degree, by definition than we are ever really conscious of. And if you are always aware of that, the Socratic method becomes more than a method. It becomes an ethic. It becomes an orientation, as I said at the start, toward thinking, toward other people, toward the world. An orientation of humility, patience, respect for the views of others, and of, of uh, nagging awareness of your own double ignorance. I really think of it as an ethic that is the contrary of the ethic perpetuated by social media. Uh, an analogy I use in the book, and I should mention, I have a book on the Socratic method. Here it is. If you enjoy the tenor of these remarks, you might enjoy the book. An analogy I draw in there is that some people, as you all probably know, think that the, um, the aqueducts, the system for delivering water in ancient Rome, had pro uh, were wonders, great wonders of the, of, the, of the ancient world, but also had defects in them in that they, they contained lead, and that lead poisoning from those water delivery systems may have eventually contributed to the downfall of Rome by causing defects in the thinking of, uh, in the cognition of people who drank the water, especially at the top. Now, there are very strong arguments that the uh, lead pipe theory of the aqueducts of Rome has nothing to it. Uh, that doesn't explain anything. And that may be true, but I think it's irresistible as a metaphor. Uh, it seems to me that social media and the internet are wonders of our world, just like the aqueducts, and they deliver extraordinary amounts of information to extraordinary numbers of people. But there's a kind of poison they carry with them because they really further an anti-Socratic ethic and approach to thought, which just thrives on quick reactions, 
rage, one-liners, everything other than slowing down, trying to authentically understand the other side, and then gently pursue the question from a state of not knowing to another state of also not knowing, but with great understanding achieved along the way. The last thing I wanna mention about the advantages of becoming a student of the Socratic method is that I think it can greatly enrich your appreciation of other philosophies such as Stoicism. And if you're all hanging around in Donald Robertson's world, I have to assume you have at least some, some interest in the Stoics. People who've read the original Roman Stoics sometimes wonder and ask, where do I go from here? What do I read next? I think a great place to go from there is to Socrates and the Socratic method. The book I've written on the Socratic method, I regard as a kind of prequel to a different book I wrote on Stoicism called The Practicing Stoic. The Stoics regarded Socrates as their hero. And in some ways you can regard him rather than Zeno as the first real Stoic. He's especially valuable for us now because in many ways, the foundations of Stoicism that the Stoics themselves valued feel very obsolete to us. Most of us have no use for the model of nature that was important to the Stoics. But you can also generate a lot of the great Stoic insights just by persistent use of the Socratic method, by asking, why do you believe these things you believe? Why do you think these things that you think? Just by asking those questions, you can generate most of what I consider the best of Stoicism without any reliance whatsoever on foundational ideas that, are no, that no longer speak uh, to most of us. I said earlier that the questions and answers of the, of the Socratic questioner are like a drip of water that can carve canyons. And in some ways you can think of Stoicism as the Grand Canyon of the Socratic method. Okay, I'll leave it there. I was told it might be helpful if I left time for a few questions. So let me invite questions if, if there are those who have them and maybe our moderator can take them from the chat and put them to me and I'll do the best I can with them. Okay, Ward, you can hear me, right? Yes. Yep, super. Uh, yep, and we're taking questions. You can stick those inside the chat. Anya, Classical Wisdom is collecting those as well. Um, so talk to us about how we do this and maintain civility, right? I mean, it, and the thing is, I guess, you know, it's super easy for someone to do a hot take and go, you know, I don't think this ended so great for Socrates, uh, but we want to be civil. Talk to us about how we do that and employ this in that way. Well, I think done right, it's it's deeply civil because if you're really doing your questioning, sorry, let me, let me back up. There, there's sort of a wise ass way to do Socratic questioning that's not very civil. And many people hate it. And, and, and you will have seen this um, caricature online, which is just somebody coming around saying, I just got some questions. I, get, I just got some questions. And what they really mean is, I have questions that I think I can use to embarrass you and show that you don't know what you're talking about. Well, nobody welcomes that. And it ends up turning uncivil. It makes the questioner feel powerful and smart and it makes everybody else hate them. I think if you're doing the Socratic method the right way, it comes from a genuine place of humility where you are aware of your own double ignorance and you're not just trying to figure out what passes for thought in the mind of the idiot, of the idiot you're talking to. You're, you're taking seriously the possibility that you don't understand. If this is really worth talking about, not that the other person's probably right, but there may be something to what they say that you need to understand. And if you start with that genuine, in other words, uh, genuine humility, not just the, the counterfeit kind, I think is the first step toward civility because I think not only does it make you a more civil person, but it makes others more civil toward you. Incivility is so often an instinctive response to what other people perceive as the arrogance of the person that they're talking to. If you can drain your own arrogance out of the conversation, I think the prospects for a civil discussion from that point forward are immediately improved. It, it turns into practical things. For example, you listen much more. If you listen carefully and make a good faith effort to repeat back and understand 
exactly what the other person thinks. To me, that again, is it's, that's a civil act in itself. And it's also a great help toward keeping the temperature low and keeping the entire discussion civil from that point forward. People tend to be very civil with others when they think the others have a genuine interest and respect in what, they, what it is they think. Yeah, so we have to earn that trust in the beginning, right? We, we have to, by giving trust in that and really come at it without, you know, you, you're you kind of talking about a thing that I see linguists talk about, which is it's a speech act to say, it make it sound like I'm asking a question, but I'm really accusing you. And that's a thing we're trying not to do, right? We had yeah. a great question in here. The thing that I loved in your book was you talked about the Socratic method versus what it was like to be a lawyer and what it meant to be inside that space. But we have a question from the audience is, as a physician, how is that different? How can I employ Socratic questioning? And, you know, where do I go with this? You know, and I think about in your book, you talk a lot about lots of these endings or aporia. I don't know if that's a feeling I want to give a patient if I'm a physician, right? Um, well, no doubt. It depends. I mean, everything is context specific. But I think if you're in any helping profession, there are a lot of basics of the Socratic method that are almost universally helpful. One is just listening, which doesn't seem like something you see in the Socratic dialogues, but it's there. There's a lot of time spent where Socrates asks at the beginning, and these turn out to be the less memorable moments, but he just wants the person to explain themselves. So asking questions and getting people, giving people a chance to talk and actually listening, as one of our other speakers said, not just waiting for your chance to talk, but just sitting there and trying for a little while to forget what you already know to convince yourself that you have at least for the purposes of this discussion forgotten what you already think and you're trying to just start from scratch with a kind of beginner's mind to listen to and take seriously what the other person has to say and then asking good faith questions about why and where these beliefs come from i think that's almost always a constructive activity in the beginning of something useful if you're trying to help another person it's useful if you're a lawyer counseling a client or I assume, although I'm not a doctor, a doctor trying to understand a patient, you want to help them see their values more clearly. And that's best done by first just listening, understanding, and then asking probing questions that take them from these things in the foreground that are often illusions they hold so strongly and require them to step back and think a little more about where these things come from. Yeah. Um, you know, Socrates, I guess, either described himself or was described as a gadfly. Uh, I don't think that that wasn't meant to be a compliment. I don't think. Um, how do we avoid that? Well, I'm not sure it's a, a bad thing. I think it, I'd rather rehabilitate the reputation of the gadfly than, than find it, <laughs> I think. Uh, and indeed, I think that um, gadfly, at least in my book, is one way I describe the, the inner Socratic function or capacity that I think people need to develop in themselves. That capacity can perhaps be overdeveloped. There is such a thing, I think. For most people, though, I think it's underdeveloped. And uh, that is the capacity of the, of the gadfly within. Now, a gadfly that hectors you and causes constant self-doubt, so you're paralyzed and unable to have, hold an opinion about anything, that maybe that's a, a gadfly in the bad sense or an overdeveloped gadfly. But I just view the gadfly as the person who asks the hard, unwelcome question. And one thing I say to my students and I say to all, to anybody is, part of having a good, strong Socratic ethic is distrusting a group of people in which everybody agrees too much about hard things. Mm. Every group needs a gadfly. And if, and, and, if, and if you don't have a gadfly in the room, then maybe you need to turn into the gadfly for purposes of discussion and raise the question and, and offer the perspective that's not in the room, but that might uh, create a real problem if it were. So just valuing dissent 
is a huge part of the Socratic ethic and treating disagreement is a welcome, productive thing. And indeed the absence of dissent or disagreement in any given situation is being a real sign of ill health. Yeah, no, thank you. So, uh, you know, I feel like the book explores the ideas of the Socratic method and you go down every path and, you know, there's lots of great information there. I did not think that it was your idea in there to manualize the Socratic method and kind of give a guidebook for how to be. It was like all these different explorations. I'm wondering as a teacher, how do you see that role and how do you approach that? You know, what advice can you give for teachers that want their students to be good at this and to be able to use that in their toolkit? Well, the, the, there are some late chapters in the Socratic Method book uh, that do attempt to say, look, if you really want to do the Socratic Method, here are some practical tips for developing good questions. I guess what I'd say is if you want to teach students to be Socratic, don't just question them Socratically because they don't experience that as instruction in how to be Socratic. They experience that as being evaluated and it's scary. Explain to them, part of the reason I'm using Socratic questions is a goal, a, an explicit goal for me is I want you to learn how to ask good questions. I'm not asking you questions to, to torment you. I'm not, I'm not asking you questions to test you. I'm asking you questions to teach you how to ask questions. So let's think together about what a good question would be. Making that process explicit is I think something many teachers do not do. And teaching the properties of a good question, that it takes the thing in the foreground and it leads you back, a good question can lead you back toward the principle behind the question that may be unconscious or half-conscious, or the reason for thinking what you think that has not yet been explored enough. And then how do you ask a good question, both substantively and in a form that is not gonna be offensive to the person that you're talking to? I just think laying out the questioning process explicitly and paying attention to it is actually a rare thing in, in most university settings or school settings. And I think making it a more explicit thing is a great favor to the students. Yeah. No. I Thank you. I think that's great advice. I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, you have had the opportunity to experience and practice this in front of a group of students, many students. You've done this over time. Uh, are there some certain paths that you find yourself taking again and again as you approach a new group of students saying, here's a question I seem to always come back to because I just love the answers or I feel like it helps them understand the process better? Well, um... It's hard to give a general answer to that. I teach a lot of different things. I teach a course on stoicism for lawyers. Uh, and there are a lot of questions in that class that I think are important for all students and all other people to ask, which, you know, what, um, what do you mean by happiness? Very simple questions that are as old as, as Socrates and, and, and the Stoics. But I think the most fundamental question, fundamental to Stoicism, but also to the intelligent practice of, of law or argument, is just why do you think what you think? And would you continue to think it if, if the context were different and, 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 and the, um, for example, in, in a lot of the politics were different? People hold so many views and, and think that they're sure about things that they would turn on on a dime if the, if the people who they're supporting and saying these things were reversed or different because they haven't taken the time to step back and ask what is the principle behind the claim they're making and how firmly would they hold to it in all circumstances? That's sort of a repeated exercise that happens every day in the classes I teach and that I, I try to make happen every day in the thoughts that I think. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And what a great place to end this. I, I, I was going to say, after having read your book and listened to some of the other speakers and watched some of the things that they've put out in the world, I always come back with, how did you come to believe that? And I, I'm asking not just everyone else, but myself, how did I come to believe this? And is that a useful thing? 
Thank you so much for the gift of your time and your experience and expertise today. And I'm sure the audience is in love with all of this as well. And they can show that inside the chat. I'm hoping that you plan to hang around for the group Q&A that we're about to do. Yes, I'll be here. Thank you so much for having us.